imagine you stand before a throne. It is beautifully crafted and ornate. It is proud and wonderful because it speaks about the majesty of the one who sits upon it. It speaks of the wide expansion and goodness of his rule and dominion. It is fit only for a king, but it is empty. Where is the king? All of a sudden you see the robes, the crown, the scepter scattered before his footstool. You turn around to see him standing, but he looks dirty, clothed in rags and common, a beauty hidden beneath, a secret righteousness on the verge of escape. But he walks out among his people, a people in revolt and rebellion. The great lie has seized them, but not for long. He will enter the battle. He will make the sacrifice. He will mend their hearts. He will not sit at a distance. The moment comes of the great reveal. The king is robed, crowned, hailed, but not with beauty, not with gold, not with praise, but scorn, pain, sin. He has exchanged his throne for a cross, his home for a tomb, his life for a rebel. What sort of king is this? But three days came and so did he. Up from that grave he had victory. He silenced sin and death. He proved his power true. He took his place upon his throne and offered us a room. This is the good news. Jesus is the king. He leads us and we follow him from our tombs to his home. We walk with him into glory and kneel at his throne. He is our rescuer, our redeemer, our substitute. And we are not ashamed of this gospel, for it is the power of salvation for all who believe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for this morning as we're uh, starting a new uh, sermon series working through the book of Romans. Um, it is an honor and a privilege to be able to proclaim uh, this message, this gospel. We thank you for it. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. I want you to think for a minute uh, as we get started this morning about some of the different rooms of your house uh, probably each of the different rooms of your house are like mine, and they have a different function, a different purpose, a different way that you live in them. For instance, in our house, we have two kind of main living areas of our home, and one is at the front of the house, and that's kind of the space where uh, we have a desk. My wife home educates uh, our son, Sam, and it's kind of set up as our school, and she educates him there. Uh, they argue about doing homework there. Uh, I come in and referee a little bit in there, right? Um, and there's a big kind of desk in there and several storage cubbies and posters related to what they're studying. The main purpose of that front room of our house, the main purpose of it is education. At the back of our house, we have our family room. And that room is kind of oriented around our TV a little bit. We have very comfortable seating in there. It's where we watch movies and TV shows. And there's a ton and a ton of toys in that room. Uh, I, I saw a, a statistic the other day that America has 4% of the world's children and 45% of the toy share. 
right? Which is, uh, I, I'm part of the problem, so my kids are part of the problem. Uh, so we have that room where it's just kind of play, family time, watching movies. We have kitchen and dining room where we prepare meals and we eat together. And about halfway through, we're like, why are we doing this? But it's important, so we, we do it, all right? You know, you always think it's going to be this magical time and you end up fighting about green beans for 20 minutes. But... Um, uh, we have our kitchen and dining room. We have our bedrooms where our kids go and sleep and play and all, all of that stuff. And I want you to think about that just for a minute because one of the rooms that God has in the scriptures is a room called the throne room. You saw the video about it a little bit. And you might have an image in your head of this room where God kind of sits on his throne. Isaiah, Zechariah, and Micah all share kind of their vision of this room and what it looks like. And in the book of Revelation, we actually see an image of it again, the throne room of God. Let me show you this quote from one of my commentaries. John states that in front of the throne, there appears to be a sea of glass, clear as crystal, and the throne is surrounded by a lion, an ox, and a man, and a flying eagle with six wings uh, and, and that covered their eyes who constantly cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come uh, repeatedly. It is also said that out of that throne proceeded lightning and thunder and voices. So I think when we tend to think about the throne room of God, we tend to think about a room like that, the, the room where God is kind of sitting on the throne controlling the universe. We think about God who maybe judges. From, you picture God sitting in that seat uh, judging the nations. We think about that room as where God's power is seen and demonstrated and active, and all of those things are absolutely 100% true. God does all of those things from, from that room. But it's also sometimes in Scripture referred to as the throne room of grace. Um, it, it is the room where God enacted his mysterious plan to give us his gospel of good news through Jesus. And that's exactly what we're talking about today. It is also, as the, scripture, as the video pointed out, it is also the room that Jesus left to come to a manger and to be born to a woman and to live a perfect life and eventually go to the, 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 to the cross. He left the throne room of grace and came to earth in a manger in order to rescue us and save us. And so we want to talk about this enacted plan that happened in the throne room of grace, this thing that the Bible referred to repeatedly as the gospel, the good news, all of that stuff. And we're starting this new series today, and we're going to kind of work through these themes of Romans. And it, so it's not a verse-by-verse -verse treatment of the book of Romans. It is a theme-by-theme -theme kind of uh, look at the book of Romans. And today we're looking at the gospel. Today we're looking at the, 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 the grace message, the salvation message, the, the, room, the, the room that Jesus left to come to earth for, for, for that plan. And here's what Paul says about it. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through uh, his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we received grace and apostleship to call the Gentiles to obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's skip down to verse 14. 
I am obligated both to the Greeks and the non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. And here's verse 16, the great verse. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So let's talk a little bit about this gospel that motivated for Jesus to leave the throne room and come to the nursing room, right? Let's talk about this gospel that motivated him to do that. First of all, the text says it was promised beforehand. It was promised beforehand. This is very important for us to remember because I think we can approach sometimes the message of the Bible with two understandings about God that are absolutely untrue. And the first one is that, first of all, like the first kind of thing that isn't true is that God tried something in the Old Testament that didn't work. God tried a plan. He tried to enact a plan. He did his best. Right? He tried to work through Israel. He tried to work through the sacrificial system. He tried to work through the law. And that plan just failed. It just didn't work. And the problem, one t- tiny little problem with that theory, is that under the surface of it, it communicates to people that God failed. And there's a real deep theological truth here. God can't fail. Right? He can't, right? God's never had that moment where he's like, ah, I really screwed that up. <laughs> what am I going to do? You, and you don't want a God that's like that anyway. So that, that kind of denotes that, and we don't want to believe in a God that can fail. The second thing is that God kind of changed his character. That in the Old Testament, he's super grumpy, right? Super legalistic, super strict. And then something happens in the New Testament, and God gets happy, Right? He gets joyful. He gets graceful. And it's, again, a theological thing just underneath this is that God can change. And we don't want to believe that either because we we don't want a God that changes. God never changes. He doesn't need to change. You change, right? I'm on a diet right now because I'm trying to change my life for the better. God doesn't need to change anything for the better. He's perfect, right? So the idea that God can change or needs to change is also not true. Instead, the truth is what Paul laid out, that God decided beforehand exactly what he was going to do to bring us the promised good news. And when you understand that and you start to reverse engineer the Bible a little bit, it really starts to make a ton of sense. If he decided beforehand what he was going to do, of course he established the nation of Israel. Because the Messiah was going to come through that nation. The Messiah needed to be born to that nation. Of course he established the law. Because someday his word, his law, was going to become flesh. Of course he gave us the prophets. Because he wanted us to be able to recognize the prophet of all prophets, his Messiah. Of course he gave us the sacrificial system. Because he wanted us to recognize the ultimate lamb that was slain. Of course he gave us the kings. Because he wanted us to recognize the king of kings and the lord of lords who forever sits on the throne. So Paul says he decided, it's not that he changed his mind or all of a sudden he took some happy pills in the New Testament, right? It's neither of those things. Instead, he knew all along what he was going to do in order to bring us Jesus. And so the gospel was decided beforehand. And it also in this text shows us that there are some central messages of the gospel. All right, I want to show you those real quick. Uh, One of the central messages of the gospel is grace in verses 5 through 7. Uh, The word grace, all it means is it is an undeserved or unearned gift. 
Grace teaches us how we are forgiven of our sins. That it wasn't anything that we did, lest no man should boast. It wasn't anything we did. But God demonstrated his grace for us through the work of Jesus on the cross so that he could pay for our sins and they could be forgiven. Right, uh, gift giving, I think, is really fun when you get it right. I was remembering this week as I was writing this message that every Thanksgiving we would go to my mom's side of the family and uh, celebrate Thanksgiving. And as part of that, we would celebrate Christmas. And I had an aunt, a godmother, who bought me a gift every year. Um, and it wasn't a mystery what it was going to be. I knew what it was going to be, but I didn't like it. All right? and, and what it was, it was a really, really heavy. I've been sweating since I was two. All right, and so I'm not a big like I'm not a big sweater guy. Right? I hardly ever wear sweater, and this was a big bulky sweater with my name kind of engraved in it. Right, my name kind of sewed into it, and I knew I was getting this every year. But still, every year my mom would sit me down. She's like, "We're going, you know, to, to my family's house to celebrate," and she's like, "You're going to get a present, and it's going to be presented to you." And she's like, "I don't care what's in that box." <laughs> I don't care what's in it. You open it, you put a smile on your face, and you say thank you. And so every year, you know, sweaters might seem like a great gift to you. I was eight, right? <laughs> All my cousins are playing with toys or whatever. I've got a new sweater to wear, right, when I'm already burning up from heat, right? So, so there's always a bunch of coaching going on. That it is a gift for you. Be grateful. Grace forgiveness of sins is your undeserved gift and my undeserved gift. We can sometimes lie to ourselves a little bit. We're going to talk about this next Sunday. We can sometimes lie to ourselves that we have somehow earned it. Make no mistake about it. You haven't. You haven't. It is unearned. And so we express gratitude. I love listening to you guys worship this morning. I feel like I didn't even need to preach this sermon after that worship set. That worship set was perfect for what we're talking about today. And I love listening to you worship because it is an expression of gratitude. And I love seeing that in our church. Because of this gift, our sins are forgiven. Because of this gift, this free gift of God, we're free to know him and worship him and have our eternal lives secured. Because of this gift, everything changes. It's grace, right? Another kind of key attribute of the gospel is belonging. Paul, uh, when, when you read Paul's writings, we'll talk about this a little bit more next week too, he was re really just happy to be at the party. Right? With his background, having uh, persecuted the church and killed Christians, he was tickled to be a part of the family of God, to belong with the other apostles and, and the church fathers. And he loved to talk about this sense of that because of grace, you get to belong. What an amazing truth. You get to belong to God. You get to belong to his people. The gospel creates belonging. We've been, at the eldership level, we've been talking about this for well over a year now, having conversations about what it means to belong at Northwest. And we want to have a church that has a high sense of belonging because the gospel makes it so. Jesus makes it so through his grace. That, that song we sing, come as you are, man. Come as you are. Come as you are. You belong because of grace. You belong to Jesus. You belong to his church. You belong because of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You belong to him and you belong with us. You belong. And that's a beautiful, good message. Paul loved to talk about it. Peace in verse 7. Another core message of the gospel. Uh, that, that as the result of the gospel, we get to have a sense of peace with God 
because our sins are forgiven, but also I think a sense of peace, knowing that in addition to our sins being forgiven, this was a plan enacted beforehand. God has been in control the entire time, and so the gospel reminds us he's still in control, right? You all may remember 9-11, right? T- today's the day. You may, you may remember that day. Uh, we were just talking to our son about it. He saw an advertisement on TV, and you know he's way too young, wasn't even born yet, and we were just talking to him about that day a little bit. And I don't know about you, that felt like a day that was out of control. Uh, that felt like a day there was a lot of fear. And what Paul is trying to get us to see is that God has an unfolding plan, not to say that A terrorist attack is part of that plan, but he can use anything and nothing takes him by surprise. So there's no reason for us to walk in fear. We got an election coming up. Please don't be fearful of a silly thing like an election. What if so-and-so doesn't get in or what if if so-and-so doesn't? Please don't be fearful about an election. God is in control and God has a plan and you might not like their policies and that's okay. Don't like their policies, but please, for all that is good and right, don't be afraid. God is in control, and God has a plan, and Jesus and his gospel of good news reminds us of that truth. Last kind of, kind of core message that I want to talk about anyway, we could do this all day, I'm not going to, but as Scott said, it's the opening day of NFL, so I know, <laughs> I know I'm on a clock, all right? So, um, righteousness in verse 17, that the gospel shows us how we become Righteous, And you know what my observation is of our, of our culture? My observation of our culture is that we are practicing a thing called humanism. And humanism is a lot of things, but one of the things humanism is, it's a prison through which we determine righteousness. So the way, it, it, it determines how I view and see the righteousness in other people. And what humanism says is, are you like me? Do you agree with me? Are we on the same aisle politically or socially or spiritually? And if we align in several areas of life, and I like you, I have to like you, humanism says, if I like you, you are good, you are righteous, you are great. And what humanism does, because my standard isn't Jesus, my standard's actually me, it keeps me from seeing sin, my own and others, and it forces me to defend the sin of others in a way that I shouldn't. So if you ever want to evaluate our political system, you will see this hypocrisy play out again and again and again. One political leader will commit a sin, and the the opposite side's like, oh, cancel, cancel, cancel. And then a few years later, that same political party that was ready to cancel, one of their leaders will do it, and it's like, well, there's reasons. There's reasons we need to understand. And it's humanism. It's humanism. If we agree, then I declare you Righteous, and the gospel is going to teach us as this series unfolds that all have sinned. All. A L L. The Greek word means all (laughs) have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And through faith in Jesus, not my political beliefs, not my own righteousness, not me trying hard. Through faith in Jesus, I am made right. I am made righteous through the work of Jesus on the cross. And so those are some of the central themes that Paul mentions. Now, it's also important, you probably put this together in the sermon already, there's also a central character in the gospel, a central human, a central person in the gospel, and it's not me and it's not you, it's Jesus. And Jesus is the central 
person in terms of the gospel. And Paul is going to make an argument that there's kind of two ways to see Jesus' role in the gospel. The first is in his earthly life. So uh, that he was, Paul will mention, he was the son of David. Right? He was a human being that lived an earthly life. And as we get closer to Jesus, if you really want to be impressive, read Matthew 1. It's all the names. Right? And you're like, why, why does Matthew, it seems like he'd start out with the virgin birth at Christmas or the angels or the stable or, or whatever. He starts out with a list of names because he is establishing the humanity of Jesus in that genealogy, that he came from a line of David. And it's important because the Jewish people believe that the Savior and Messiah would come from the line of David. But it's also important to see that Jesus was from the greatest king in Israel's history at that time had been David, and that Jesus came from the line of a king. That's what his humanity was made of. So in a few ways, Jesus is like King David. There's so many great stories I could have chosen to show that how Jesus is like King David. One of my favorite stories about David is actually before he became king. It's the story of David and Goliath, and I know you've probably all heard it, but um, since I've got the microphone, I'm telling it again. All right, so um, it's the story of, king da- uh, of, of David before he was king, and he goes to the front line. This war is kind of ramping up. It's, it's escalating, and um, David shows up to bring his brother some lunch, and Goliath, the giant, who I really identify with in that story as a side note, um, <laughs> Goliath comes out and he challenges people to like a one-on-one battle. And he says, let's avoid war. We'll go one-on-one and whoever wins, the opposing will, will serve the one who wins. Right? And so we can avoid war, we can av- uh, avoid battle and all of that stuff. Who wants to fight me? And everyone just kind of you know, backs up. No, nobody... Nobody wants to fight him. And David shows up. You know, we, he's probably actually kind of a young adult at this point, you know, maybe a teenager. We got him all as a kid, you know, you know a little eight-year-old boy or whatever. But he, he shows up, and he's like, why won't anyone shut this guy's mouth? He's, he's attacking the Lord. Why won't anyone uh, shut him up? And, and nobody will step forward. And David finally says, uh, I will step forward. And this story, I don't know about you, this story so resonated with me, especially when I was a young adult and all that. Let me read it to you. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver me into your hands. You have this passage in your head next time you're stuck in traffic. This day... The Lord will deliver you into my hands, right? right? He'll deliver you into my hand, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day, I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God of Israel. And all those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. And as the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly to the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag, taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, which I loved as a young kid. The stones sank into his forehead, and he fell face down to the ground. And I'm telling you, when I was young, I was like, oh, that story's awesome. I loved that story. I wanted that to be me. I wanted to be brave like that. I wanted to be the guy that went after things that I was afraid of. I wanted to conquer giants. The truth is, 
That story is in the scripture, not so I'd see me. That story is in the scriptures so that we would see Jesus, our new and better David. That he confronts the giant called sin. He enters into the arena, ready to do battle. That story's not about me. That story's about Christ. That he enters in, he challenges the giant, he defeats the giant, he cuts its head off once and for all so that you and I can be saved in this life and the next. Jesus is the giant killer, not me. And he did that in his humanity. He did that as a man. The Bible says he offered himself as a human being. He offered himself as a living sacrifice. He offered himself as a living sacrifice so that our sins could be forgiven. It's called substitutionary atonement is the big fancy word for it. All it means is that God allowed for the sins of humanity to be paid by one from humanity. And so Jesus left the throne room of grace. He came to that stable. He became a man. And he said, let me be their substitute. Let me climb into the arena. Let me go after the giant. I know I'm mixing metaphors. Go with it. Let me get in there. And let me defeat sin once and for all. A perfect sacrifice without blemish. He is our new and better David. And when you think about Jesus' humanity from the life of David, in some ways he was like our King King David. A new and better king in a lot of ways, but in some ways he was like David, but in so many other ways he was far superior. Not every story about David is the one I just read, where he's like going after the giant, you know, cutting his head off, stones, all that stuff. It's awesome, but I'm probably going to be canceled for that. But anyway, it's neither here nor there. Not every story about David is awesome. Uh, David fell into sin in his humanity. He was tempted. He had an affair. When he realized that the woman he had the affair with was pregnant, he arranged to have her husband killed to cover up the affair. And in Jesus, we see a new and better David who was tempted in every way that we are, but he refused to sin. So in some ways, he's like David, but in so many other ways, he's so much better than King David. He is our new and better king. And his humanity reminds us of God's unfolding plan, that God had a plan all along, His humanity reminds us that we have an example, a better example than David. We have the example of Jesus that we can follow. His humanity reminds us of his grace, that there's an understanding that flows from Jesus because he put on human skin and and he walked a humble life, that that his humanity helps him to understand our condition. His humanity teaches us a lot of things, but it's not just his humanity that Paul wants to point out. He was the son of... Uh, of David, but the gospel also teaches us about his divinity. He wasn't just the son of David, he was also the son of God. And his sonship of God was proven by the resurrection. His resurrection teaches us that he was indeed the son of God. Now, uh, we have a hard time understanding uh, this in our very independent American culture. That in our very independent American culture, a father and a son are two kind of separate entities. Right? And we even talk about this you know, in, in the way that we talk about things. That you know, I'm a kind of middle-aged man. I like dessert, um, glory to God, football, reading. And Sam, my son, uh, likes video games, uh, comedy books, and salty snacks. We're a little bit different in that way. But in our independent culture, we, view, we would view Sam and I as two separate individuals. But in the 
first century, they had a reverence for the family relationship that we just don't have here in America. And so the son in the first century would carry the weight and the authority of the father. A lot of times people would kind of view them as the same entity. So if I was a business owner, Jesus actually tells a story about this. I said, I need someone to handle this. I'm not sending my right-hand executive. I'm sending my son. My son is going to go in there, and he's going to carry the full weight of the Higgs name, the full authority of the Higgs name, and he's going to go and knock heads together, whatever needs to happen, and solve the issue. That's how they viewed things in the first century, is that the father and the son were one. And so when Jesus came, on to, came to earth, he talked about being the son of David, describing his humanity, but he also talked about being the son of God. And our, in our American minds, we read that, and we think, oh, he's different from the father. He's the son of God. He's not actually God himself. He's the son of God. But in the first century, that is not what they would have seen happening at all. They would say, man, and you can tell how agitated they get when Jesus says this stuff. They would say, oh, he's identifying himself as one with the Father. They are the same entity. He is the son of God with full authority as divinity to be our Lord. Let me show you this in one kind of story on the screen for you. One of my favorite New Testament stories. One day... Jesus was teaching, and the Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from the, uh, every village in Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Some men, carrying a paralyzed man on a mat, tried to take him to the house and lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on a mat through the tiles in the, into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who does this fellow think he is? Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your heart? Can you imagine that, being around Jesus? You're thinking, why are you thinking that? Right? It's kind of unnerving. But Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But I want you to know, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And immediately he stood in front of them, took what he'd been lying on, and went home praising God. I bet he was. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Imagine coming to church and seeing that. I thought service was good today. Yeah. Guy got up and walked. Yeah. All right, so... Um, so there's so much I love about this story. I, I, love, I love the friend's commitment, don't you? That they want to get their friend around Jesus. And it's all crowded. They're, in, they're at somebody's house and it's all crowded out. And they're like, to the roof! <laughs> right? And they climb up there and you know, get your shovels, right? And they climb there and oh, Jesus is teaching us and stuff starts falling on his head and stuff, right? The, the friend's commitment to their buddy to get him around Jesus is very, very moving to me. Right? And we feel a little intimidated sometimes to like, invite a friend like, to church with us or to uh, invite a friend to a special event or whatever. I get intimidated by that too. And we get intimidated by that. And these Joes are heading up to the roof, digging, destroying property. Right? Like, yeah, just submit that to insurance. It'll be fine. Right? And, and ju- just so they could get their friend around Jesus. That's friendship. And I love this story because Jesus identifies a problem this guy has that he didn't realize he had. He's been paralyzed, 
can't walk. They break up the roof. They lower him down. And Jesus looks at him and says, hey, your sins are forgiven. I didn't come to church today because of my sin problem, Jesus. I came because I can't walk. And so Jesus recognized that the, 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 the being paralyzed was a problem, but that this guy had a spiritual problem that maybe he didn't even recognize. And Jesus says, listen, I have the ability to forgive sins. And listen, the last thing I love about this, which is where I kind of want to land as we get ready to conclude, is that Jesus does this to stir the pot. He did it to cause offense. You can hear the disdain in their voice. Who does this fellow think that he is? Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus says, ta-da, right? It's in the original Greek. You have to learn the original Greek tonight, right? That, hey, only God can forgive sin. And Jesus says, you know what? what? You're making a decent point in this way. That anybody can say, hey, your sins are forgiven. I could walk around to each of you today and say, hey, your sins are forgiven. And it wouldn't be proven until the day that you died whether or not they were, right? So anybody can say to anybody, your sins are forgiven. It is unprovable. But a guy laying on a mat, paralyzed, unable to walk, that's a provable fact. And so Jesus says, let me show you that I have the power to forgive sins. Get up your mat and walk. And the man gets up and walks out of church that day. And my point in sharing this with you is that this story pales in comparison to the power of the resurrection. And in the resurrection, Jesus proves his lordship. He proves that he is the Lord. He proves that he is on the throne. He proves that he was God in human flesh. He proves it through the resurrection. And the resurrection reminds us he is Lord. He is on the throne. And he can do exactly what he promises to do. So through him, his resurrection teaches us, through him is grace. Are you here today with a truckload of sin and you want forgiven? His resurrection proves he can forgive it. Through him is grace. Through him is power. Are you here today beat up, downtrodden, sad, depressed, unsure about going another day? Through him is power. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead is at work in you. Through him is belonging. Are you feeling like you don't belong anywhere and you just kind of go through like, well, I don't belong, I don't belong. Through him is belonging. His resurrection makes it so. Through him is peace. Are you here today? Anxiety, depression, all that stuff. Through him you can find a sense of spiritual peace. Through him is joy. Through him is righteousness. And through him everyone is invited. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. He said, Jesus said, I came to make this an all play. So that every single person can have joy, hope, peace, grace, power, contentment, purpose in me. And so this is what our series is going to be about. It's these different spaces that Jesus wants to meet us in. But I wanted to lay the groundwork that just like he says, man, all right, yeah, I guess anybody can say your sins are forgiven. Dude, get up and walk. Not everybody can do that. Right? Not everyone can do that. A lot of people can say your sins are forgiven, but you put them in a grave and usually they stay dead. Usually. But three days later, he walked out. He walked out to prove to you that in him is life. He is the Lord who's on the throne and he left that throne to come to earth. And he's returned to it. And he can do, his resurrection tells us, he can do exactly what he promised to do. 
So let me remind you this morning as we get ready to receive communion. In Jesus is grace. In Jesus, there's power. In Jesus, there's belonging. In Jesus, there's peace. In Jesus, there's joy. In Jesus, there's righteousness. And every single person is invited. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. And as we get ready to receive communion this morning, I just pray that we, like wide-eyed children, would revel in your grace this morning. We'd be moved by it. We would remember that Jesus came as a human being, as a new and better David, a new and better king. But he also came and he went to a cross and he defeated death through his resurrection to remind us that he is that new and better king. He is on the throne and he can do what he promised to do. And so right now we are resting in some promises that Jesus gave us. And I know that there are people right now as we get ready to receive communion, they are in need of grace. May they be reminded that grace is found in you. There are some people here that are in need of peace. There is something going on in their life that has disrupted them and disoriented them, and they're afraid. May they be reminded today that in you is peace. There are people here today that just feel detached from, they they don't feel like they belong. May we be reminded today that in you is belonging. And we belong to you, but we also belong to your people. May we be a church that allows people to belong. And there are people here today with a truckload of sin that they just don't know how it could ever be forgiven. How they could ever be made right with you. May we be reminded this morning that in you is righteousness. We are declared there is a righteousness apart from the law that comes by grace through faith. May we receive your righteousness as our own. It's the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. We're going to receive communion right now. They're going to pass it out and you'll find two cups stacked on top of each other. One has some bread representing Jesus' body. The other some juice representing his blood. And it's an opportunity for us, like I said in the prayer, to just revel, kind of rest in his grace, uh, to celebrate his grace. And then uh, you can just do that. And in a few minutes, I'll come up and we'll receive communion all together as a church family. Uh, we like to do that here. So uh, just uh, bask in his grace for a few minutes while we pass out the emblems. And then I'll come back up in just a minute. His body given for you. His blood poured out. Jesus, we are grateful for your grace. We are grateful for your lordship demonstrated through your resurrection that you can do literally everything you said you would do. We hold on to those promises. We're grateful. May we be encouraged today by your sacrifice. May we be encouraged by your power. May we be encouraged by your grace. And may we leave this place ready to uh, fully embrace a relationship with you and everything that you promised would be true. Let it be so. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Hey, uh, before we uh, get ready to leave, um, uh, on your way out, um, we have uh, books. Uh, some of you know that we're doing this series 
uh, with several other churches from around Minnesota, Indiana, uh, Missouri, uh, a group of us uh, partnered together to do this series. And so um, we've got workbooks uh, for you out on the table in the lobby. We'd love for you to uh, pick, pick one of these up. When you open it up, um, what you'll see is that um, there's about 41 pages uh, for week one. So we, we just finished week one. There's small group guide, a devotional guide, uh, some background on Romans, all sorts of stuff in here. Um, I want to say a couple things about this. We know the print's small. Um, uh, we, we, we've gotten the feedback. We know. All right? So um, we, we know it's small. Um, these, these were free. They were originally going to be $10. We figured out how to print them in-house uh, to make them free to you because we really wanted everyone uh, to have one of these. So be sure to grab one on your way out. Um, we, we know it's going to require a magnifying glass for some, or it, it is, I mean, even my 46-year-old eyes, are, they agree it's small. Right? So, um, uh, but also, uh, we want to uh, just have you start going through these um, devotional guides, and you'll find some QR codes in this that is a link to a different church, uh, because we, did, we didn't originally write this. It's going to a mentor of mine, his name's Mark Christian. Uh, he serves in Joplin, Missouri, and you're going to be able to go to his church, and you'll, you'll, you can listen to his sermons. Uh, I think that'd be great for you to, to do and get, like, a better take, all right? So, um, Mark, you'll, you'll be able to see Mark's sermons. You'll be able to see some of Mark's content, and it's all going to be really great stuff. So grab one of these on your way out. It's just an additional resource. We'd love for you to have it, um, and uh, we're, we're grateful that for, to Mark's church who put all these together for us. So, uh, all right, we got, we got week one done. Uh, next week, we're going to look at the altar of sacrifice called uh, the mercy seat. Propitiation is sometimes uh, the fancier word, uh, and we're going to be looking at that uh, next Sunday. Go ahead and stand up. We're really glad that you're here. Uh, God bless you guys, and we'll see you uh, for week two next Sunday. Draw.